Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to a noon edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine today. And today we're going to talk about the uh, the landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this week. The Supreme Court on Thursday ruled on the constitutionality of the, the Affordable Care Act, upholding the legislation in a five to four decision. Uh, we're going to talk about how that ruling will affect Indiana's health care industry. We have two guests with us in the studio. Mark Moore is here. Mark is president and CEO of IU Health Bloomington. And David Orendlicker is here. He's an IU McKinney, McKinley, McKinney School of Law professor specializing in health care law. He teaches uh, also constitutional law. Uh, you can visit us or you can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So welcome to the program. Thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, Bob. Big decision. Did, you, did it surprise either one of you, the way that things came down? David? Uh, not a surprise that they upheld it. And um, if we had gone you know, back a couple of years, this is exactly what I would have expected. The tax argument made the most sense. What was surprising, though, is that that argument didn't get any traction. Only one judge out of 20 or so in the lower courts thought it was the right argument. And when the Supreme Court did its oral argument in March, it didn't seem there was much support. So it was surprised that they went that path, but only because they hadn't tipped their hands in that direction. But it was the most plausible argument. As many of us have pointed out, the Affordable Care Act is not that different, the mandate from Medicare, right? We all pay part of our income on a payroll tax to fund our health care for when we retire. So why can't the government levy a tax to make us buy health care before we reach 65? Mm -hmm. So it's not a surprise in that sense. And I suppose the biggest surprise was that uh, John Roberts ended up to the right of Anthony Kennedy. People have viewed Kennedy as the swing vote, and for Roberts to end up as the swing vote is a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mark? Um, Bob, I would say in the provider community it probably was a surprise. I was in a meeting uh, two weeks ago, and that question was asked, what do we expect the outcome? And the vast majority out of 150 providers thought that it would neither be fully supported nor fully rejected, that something would be uh, ruled unconstitutional like the individual mandate. So mm-hmm. there, there's a certain amount of surprise, yes, right. after yesterday. Okay. So, yeah, the uh, the individual mandate was the one issue that I think even after the arguments, and I think, uh, David, back back at that time, there was a lot of discussion about how, oh, boy, it looks, like, it looks bad for for the Affordable Care Act, the argue, they, they were really honing in on that argument. And people were, were saying at the time, well, you know, you, you can't really read too much into this, although every pundit out there was. So this is an example of how, you know, you, you have to listen to the arguments and then things could go a different way. Exactly. And probably the most telling, if you go back and look, what really should have led us to expect this kind of decision was – when the lower courts were deciding this, it tended to split on partisan lines. The Republican judges threw it, wanted to throw it out. The Democratic judges wanted to uphold it. But there were a few – when there was a break, they tended to be moderate conservatives who, were, who said, I might not like this, but it's constitutional. So there was Jeffrey Sutton on the Sixth Circuit. There was Lawrence Silberman on the D.C. Circuit. There was Charles Freed, a Harvard Law professor, who was Reagan's solicitor general. And, you know, these, those, they are the kind of concerns that John Roberts fits more comfortably with them than with some of the 
to the Scalia Thomas kind of conservative. So, so that was probably, if you were looking for kind of a canary in the coal mine, that's probably where it was. How do you see, David, just this idea of the individual mandate affecting the hospital? Well, I, I would say, um, and, and if I could take that question a little bit broader, I, I'd say the hospital industry and, and IU Health uh, also has generally supported the expansion of, <clears throat> excuse me, of access uh, for insurance to the uninsured. That's a general concept that, that the hospital industry has absolutely embraced. However, some of the concern is that just to expand um, the un- ex- insurance access uh, is not true reform, that we're really into the elements of aligning incentives around desired outcomes. And we have been in a volume-based, and still are, a volume-based business where the more you do, the more you're rewarded. And there's some experimentation toward value-based uh, where we're being, we'll be rewarded and at risk for outcomes, but the vast majority of our business is still not there. So until that is dealt with, uh, there's, there's real concerns about an individual mm-hmm. mandate that simply expands that access and more uh, coverage, but at Medicaid rates, which is below cost, uh, and perhaps fuels the utilization in the same breath. That's an important. What Mark's saying is exactly right. We have a system that just doesn't function well, and rather than fixing the system, we're putting more people into the system that doesn't work so well. And and he's right. It it can break down if you if you try to squeeze more and more people, and you don't make it work better. Then how, we're not going to be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. Is it a huge oversimplification then to say, Mark, that the hospital would benefit because you're going to have to serve fewer people who are uninsured because people will be required to have insurance? The, ver- the verdict's not in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I'd have to say. I mean, obviously, to get coverage for an individual who doesn't have it that then gets them into a primary care relationship it has to be a good thing in my mind and has to perhaps eventually um, prevent hospital uh, admissions and readmissions and things like that if they're getting good primary care and preventive care, et cetera. So I think that's a good thing. But, again, the incentives, if they're not aligned, get very perverse. If if you have questions about uh, what happened with the Supreme Court and the Affordable Care Act, this week or what that's going to mean to you, this is a place to to be today because we have two great guests with us, Mark Moore, president and CEO of IU Health Bloomington, David Orentlicker. He's a a school of law professor in Indianapolis for Indiana (coughs) University. He is a constitutional law expert as well as a healthcare law expert. So give us a call at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, the web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. What uh, a lot of people have been writing today, of course, people writing all sorts of things today, is that, okay, now uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act can continue. So, Mark, what does that mean to you and the hospital? I mean, what kinds of things are, uh, are changed for you because of this, of this act? Well, I think the good news for us, and particularly within IU Health, is we have been preparing and embracing certain trends that, regardless of the legislative outcome, seem to make sense. We've been on course to develop more coordinated patient-centered care. Now, what does that mean? We have been expanding primary care in our community um, from not having any primary care physicians that are, were fully uh, aligned or employed with IU Health to now... Um, Come July, August uh, 24, we have two um, primary care centers. We're looking at a third. So that expansion of primary care, uh, particularly around the concept that they call a medical home, is, is very important in any eventuality. Second of all, care coordination. As anyone knows who's tried to navigate the health care waters with a loved one or, or personally, it is difficult at times. As David said, a flawed system. And so we're trying to put more care coordination uh, within the primary care practices and in in, uh, looking at high-risk, high-cost patients. We're actually doing that in conjunction with the university. Uh, And we're also putting individuals like pharmacists and diabetes care coordinators in the primary care practice to really start to get a chronic disease at that early stage. We are actively participating in health education and wellness uh, with the Local Achieve initiative here that, Bob, you and I are both part of, 
as we look at the quality of life and try to better that. An example is a collaborative around childhood obesity, which is a partnership of IU Health, Bloomington Parks and Rec, and the YMCA, really aimed at at that population, that growing crisis. Uh, We have a lot more physicians fully aligned. That's the term I use. They do become employed in that process, but we're starting to align those incentives with a larger organization. So we've gone from around 20 individuals in IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians to 140 in just the last year and a half. So we're putting the pieces together for an integrated delivery system that hopefully can be flexible enough to to adapt to this uh, future we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, and, and really make a difference. So, uh, and, and how, help, me, help me understand this. Though, that how does this act or this, this law, does it, does it mandate that you do that? Are, you going to, are there incentives in the law for you to do that? How does the law push you in that direction? Well, there are different dimensions in the law, particularly around a term called accountable care. Uh, which increasingly is starting to move down the road that we just talked about of putting us at risk for our outcomes, our clinical outcomes, our patient satisfaction outcomes, and then ultimately tying our, our reimbursement to that end. Medicare reimbursement over the next four or five years in the act will go from putting us at risk around 2% of that reimbursement to as much as 8 to 10% around these categories. So it is beginning that process. Now, what I was saying, our frustration is, I just soon flip the switch and go there much quicker. Right. Uh, but it's beginning that process. Yeah, one of the, uh, you know, this accountable care organization is great, and I, I support it. But we have to remember, we tried this in the 1990s, and we called it managed health maintenance organizations. The principle is the same. We need to coordinate care better. We need to have people monitored and, and, and have a physician, primary care doc, coordinate their care with the specialists and, and not reward doctors for doing more, but reward them for giving better care. And, and you know what happened? People didn't like it because, if you, because what they didn't like was having their choice limited. If you want to have high-quality, low-cost care, then... You know, you have to, you can't have an MRI facility on every block, and you can't have four heart hospitals in one city like we do in Indianapolis. You have to cut excess capacity. And and there was a the backlash. The public didn't like it, and the providers didn't like it, and, and managed care relaxed all of the cost-saving principles that it that were effective. If you go back to the late 1990s, healthcare cost premiums went up less than a percent for a few years per year, and then we lost that. So I think that's the big question: Will we be willing to to bite the bullet? Because you know, if you're going to s- spend less money on healthcare, there the, the the bad side is fewer people are going to be employed in the healthcare sector, and and that's hard to do, especially in this kind of economy. Mm-hmm. What happens now on the state level in terms of implementation? Because from what I've, I understand, they've held off on implementation. They haven't done what the hospital has done. And does that put the state behind now, or what do they do? Yeah, I mean, the, the important, you know, what about people who are going to start to buy their health care on their own? They don't get it from their employer. They're, they they're too, earn too much from Medicaid. They're supposed to go to an exchange. Well, they're supposed to be up and running in a year and a half. And states like California and Massachusetts have been getting them going, and, and states like Indiana have not. Um, so will they be up and functioning and running properly in a year and a half? It's hard to say. And, and these exchanges, you know, the, good, the best analogy is if you buy your airline tickets on Expedia. That's a marketplace. Expedia does not – it's not an airline. They just – are a place where the different airlines can come and market their tickets, and Expedia sets up in a way that's understandable to you as a consumer. That's what these healthcare exchanges are supposed to do. WellPoint and all the other insurers can market their plans, but the, the exchange will present them in a way that's easy for the consumer to figure out how much they cost and what they're going to get and do some real comparison shopping. And then anybody would be able to buy through the exchange. As opposed to now, most people get get healthcare through their employer. Well, most people still will get it through their employer. Uh-huh. I work at Indiana University. I will still get my Indiana University plan. It's really a small. It's only five or six percent of the public that actually buys individual plans. But for those people, it's a huge deal 
because now they don't have to worry about the pre-existing conditions problem. They'll get the same rate. When I go on Expedia for my airline ticket, they don't charge me more because of my age or whatever. And But when I go to buy insurance, they will charge me more because if I've had a diagnosis of heart disease or cancer, that won't happen anymore. That's the big deal about the exchanges and the Affordable Care Act. Mm. Is there a chance that they would extend some of these deadlines because of the challenge? Or is there precedent for that? Absolutely. Yes. How many waivers were granted in the first year of the Affordable Care Act? Yes, the Health and Human Services can say to a state they can apply for a waiver, and, and there, hundreds of temporary waivers were granted. The other thing that will happen, too, if a state says, I can't do the exchange, I won't do the exchange, the federal government will do it for them. Yeah, I think uh, uh, according to this document I have, the the states have until the end of the year to create the online exchange in the marketplace, and it's supposed to be fully operational in 2014. If it doesn't happen, the federal government can come in and do it. And and it's a generalization, but most of the federal programs we've dealt with have set dates that have always been delayed. (laughs) So We have a phone call. We're going to go to Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi. um, I've been listening to people who have... Uh, reservations about the plan, and what I've heard are general statements without specifics that the cost for everybody will go up, and I wondered on what basis these these, uh, positions were taken. David? Will the cost go up? Well, that's a good question. Um, In some ways, it will... One of the reasons why it will go down is because... Everybody has to have insurance. So if you're young and healthy and you say, the odds that I'm going to get much benefit from a health insurance policy when I'm young and healthy is pretty low. Why pay for a, a policy where I'm really going to be end up subsidizing people who are sicker? Now those people are going to have to buy insurance and are going to have to subsidize That's what insurance is about. The 80% pay for the 20% who use it. That's what all – Right? And that's what you hope for. I have auto insurance. I have homeowner's insurance. I hope I never have to claim that. I hope I spend my life subsidizing the people whose houses, you know, have a fire or who people who have automobile crashes because I don't want those things to happen to me. And I don't want to get sick either and have to use my health insurance policy. So by bringing people into the pool, that will lower premiums. On the other hand, the other side is the people who have you know, are sick and can't get insurance because of their pre-existing conditions, they'll be in the pool now, too, and they'll increase rates. So the question is, what will happen overall, I think, depends on how effective the mandate is and, and a lot of other factors that that are hard to predict. I also think one of the wild cards is utilization. You're talking about a significant population that has not had coverage that in many cases is waited until the, they have a condition that is acute, but now we'll be able to access care in a much, um, you know, more timely fashion. And whether that gets fueled by that many people entering the the, the system with, again, the old incentives aligned to see as many people, people as you can, um, remains to be seen how that impact. But we're getting some evidence from Oregon. Uh, this is worth watching. They had a lottery to they had wanted they had some new slots for I think their Medicaid program for but care for the poor, but they didn't have enough for everybody. So they had a lottery to pick who gets in, who doesn't. And now they've got a kind of a randomized study to see what's the benefit when you put uninsured people into an insurance plan. They have the people who didn't win the lottery to compare them with, and the early findings are that yes, they are spending more. Mm-hmm. This idea that. We'll save money because we get to care for them earlier just isn't being borne out. They're coming out and getting more care. They will be healthier as a result, but you don't get something for nothing. Right. And we will spend more and more. You're absolutely right. When you put more money in the system, you're going to spend more. Maybe more. down the road, David, it might. Yeah. But that's that's very long. long yeah, it's very long term. Okay, Stan, thanks. Thanks. All right, appreciate it. We've got another call. Let's go to Dennis on the line. Dennis? Hi, I just wondered, uh, Mr. Healthcare Executive, what do you think healthcare should look like in Indiana 10 years from now? Use your imagination. See ya. Thanks. <laughs> well, I, you know, what I described that we're trying to do, um, if I didn't preface it, I should have, I think is the right thing to do. I, I think to have an integrated delivery system where 
all the various parts, the physicians working on evidence-based protocols, uh, working in, in tandem with hospitals and outpatient services, where the care is coordinated, where we strive to have as many people have primary care practitioners as possible. It doesn't have to be a physician. It can be a nurse practitioner. But, but those providers working as a team um, is, is a system that, in, in my mind, makes absolute sense. Now, one of the dimensions that we as a society have to get our arms around is end of life. When you look at the statistics in the, in the United States uh, from the age 60 on up, we spend an, in a, uh, you know, a disproportional amount of money compared to other uh, countries. And I heard a speaker who said that buys you about 11 months of life. And we know the quality of that life is not real good. So hospice services, our new hospice house, uh, we've started up a palliative care team uh, in the acute arena. Uh, and then culturally, coming to grips with this is a huge part of it. But, but that integrated delivery system working in a coordinated fashion for, for desired outcomes, in my mind, would be uh, a premier delivery system. Okay. Yeah, and the other thing is, I, Mark's absolutely right. That's what we need to do to make the system work better. But the but one thing that tends to get lost in all this is that improving health is not the same as improving health care. We're going to get do a lot more for people if we improve their their diet, their exercise, and do a lot of the public health measures that prevent them from getting sick in the first place. And I think one of the lost opportunities with all the debate over the Affordable Care Act was that it really was about dealing with sick people and much less about making sure we're a healthier population. And, and, and you know, public health is the stepchild of our health care system, and, and that really hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got another phone call. Let's go to Joe. Joe? Yeah, hi. I just had a couple of questions. Uh, just to tag on to what you were saying about health, does, do you think this bill then encourages people to eat and do whatever they want and say, oh, I have health care. Now I can just have my horrible diet. What can we do to encourage people to have better diets? And that will reduce the health care cost tremendously. Uh, the moral hazard problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah there are, uh, uh, you know, sure. But there are a few things the act does do. It's not totally bereft. Uh, you will pay more for your insurance if you smoke. Yeah. Oh, so, good. Um, yeah. There are incentives for employers that have wellness programs. They get a big, a pretty substantial tax break if they provide, you know, these kinds of programs, exercise club memberships or whatever else to encourage their employees to be healthier. And insurers may have, and there are some, I can't remember exactly what they're allowed to do, but they are allowed to change, you know, uh, raise or lower your insurance premium based on your participation in wellness programs. Oh, great. Now, the other question is, I'm, I'm a little confused. Is it, it says everybody has to have health care, but what if you already have it through your business or, or job or something like that? Is this just for people with no insurance whatsoever? Correct. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. you would continue with your employed employer's oh. insurance. Okay, great. Thanks, mm-hmm. guys. All right, Joe. Thanks a lot for the call. If you do already have insurance through your employer, will that rate go up? Or will that be figured into this at all? Don't know. <laughs> you know, the in, uh, unintended consequences, will the overall cost of health care go up? The, the cost shift that David was talking about? I mean, we operate under that every day. Just like the insurance principle, uh, we don't receive um, adequate payment from Medicare and Medicaid. It's less than cost, so the commercial insured patients pick up the difference. But I think one thing that Joe brought up, and, and David, you addressed it, is the uh, insurance companies have taken a lot of, and, and businesses have taken a lot of this on themselves now. That if, if when I pay for my insurance, uh, I pay a lower rate because I've committed to being in a screening program, and you know I have to have I have to do certain testing every year just to make sure that I'm trying to stay as healthy as I can. And if I decide I don't want to do that, that's fine; they don't mind. But I have to pay a lot more for my insurance. So, yeah, th- there's a lot of good out of that. We know, you know, when you look at behavioral. S- studies how people respond to incentives. We know telling somebody 20 years down the line, 
you're going to get a heart attack if you don't exercise today. You know, people just don't respond to that kind of long-term horizon. If you say to somebody, you will lose something today or tomorrow if you don't do what I want you to do, that has an impact. And so, you know, so yes, saying we're going to take something out of your paycheck every week probably influences (laughs) people. You know, take cigarettes. The most effective way to discourage smoking is to raise the cigarette tax. Works far better than anything else. The downside is not everybody can be healthier. There are some people who exercise and eat right and don't smoke and still put on weight, still have high blood pressure, and you don't – it's not fair to penalize them. Right. Okay. We are uh, at half halfway mark, our halfway mark. So we're uh, talking with Mark Moore, president and CEO of IU Health Bloomington, David Orenlecker, uh, School of Law professor at Indiana University and on the Indianapolis campus. Um, we're talking about the Affordable Care Act and what happened this week. If you want to join us, I'm going to give you the phone number so you can get on the line, 855-0811-877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, who's uh, here sitting in today for Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling this week on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The Supreme Court, of course, upheld the legislation in a 5-4 to decision. We're talking about how that is affecting, going to affect Indiana's health care industry. And our guests are Mark Moore, president and CEO of IU Health Bloomington, and David Orentlecker, uh, a law professor in the uh, IU School of Law at Indianapolis. Uh, he teaches constitutional law and is also a, a specialist in health care law. You can join us by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 uh, from outside of the Bloomington area. And the web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can go there to join a live chat. We have two callers who are on the phone. Dennis, go ahead. Yes, uh, I have a question in regards to it. Just seems to me, in my years of being a consumer of health insurance, that my control of expenses has every year continued to diminish. And the company, I mean, the only control I have is pretty much what my employer offers three plans and, and pick a different plan, and that's my only control of expenses. So. I don't get to really choose uh, whether to do a test that is highly speculative, perhaps. Uh, that That's something only my insurance, my insurer gets to choose. Under this act, does a patient wind up with more control over their own health expenditures or less at the micro level when they're talking to their position. Either one of you have a want to take a stab at that? I'm I'm not sure David it really changes for the consumer, does it? I don't think the act does. One there has been this movement to do the health savings account. So I for the first year did that. Now by the way. I'm sorry? 
I said, that is what I have now. Okay, so now, savings account. right, so now what happens is, you know, we have a deductible, a family deductible, I think of like $4,000. So that 4000 is sitting in an account in our name, and every time we go to a doctor now and they want to do a test or do a treatment, I know it's coming out of that account. And, and the theory is that I'll be more careful about agreeing. I'll say, well, wait a sec, maybe I really need this. And, and the evidence is, yes, if, if you put more of the patient's skin in the game, as they say, it does matter. The, there are two downsides to this. One is um, we're, if you're not a doctor, how can you tell whether it's important or not? Do we really want patients to make the decisions whether to accept treatment or not? Because people are going to be reluctant, may, may stay home when they don't need to see a doctor, but they also may stay home when they really should be seeing a doctor. Well, yeah. let me give you an example, though, of the kind of thing that I'm talking about where um, my doctor pre- or wanted normal, routine, diagnostic blood tests. Okay, these were things that should be done. No question about that. The question is, is who does the test? And the doctor said, I don't care who does the test. And I have a tremendous amount of pushback from some large institutional uh, suppliers because they are so tied in with the insurance companies, they could not even quote me a rate for tests. And I talked to like four different people in one large institution. They still couldn't quote me a rate. They said, well, in two or three days, maybe we can get you a quote. Uh, That strikes me as as pretty much out of my control. It it is a a challenge in terms of the pricing and, uh, I, I hope that wasn't IU Health Bloomington because we have financial counselors that will help work with patients and, and estimate what costs will be for various tests and so forth. Uh, but I'm back to alignment of incentives, too. If the provider is incentivized to keep you healthy, uh, and we can call it population health or whatever, uh, it changes the dynamic of that, uh, where the professional is geared toward saying, let's do what is necessary, what is appropriate. But let's not overutilize. And, and let's actually in the act that that other than the health savings account, uh, yeah. really has any way for the individual other than the the particular insurance policy that they decide to buy. Uh, I think that's correct. Yeah, to, the act is probably directed more at the delivery system yeah. and, and yeah. beginning that process of evolving it from volume to value. But you're right. We do need more transparency and and certainly. Health policy experts are calling for it, and hospitals, as Mark said, IU and other hospitals are doing a better job of making that kind of information available. The other problem is once a lot of this will never fix because that's the nature of insurance. I might want to shop around for the $100 or $200 test while I still have that $4,000 deductible, but if somebody in my family needs a major surgery, that's going to wipe out that deductible no matter where I go, whether it's a $10,000 hospital or a $30,000 hospital, it's going to suck up all my deductibles. So I don't have the incentive to price shop. I'll go to what I think is the best place, and if they charge for it, the insurance company will pay for it. And and you can't get around that. If you If you believe in insurance, then you've got to protect people from catastrophic costs. All right, Dennis, Thank thanks a lot. Much. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Our phone number is 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. Web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Doug is on the line. Doug? Gentlemen. Hey, Doug. Hey, um, I seem to recall from classes I took years ago that insurance was created as a shared assumption of risk. Right. Everybody's right. nodding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it pays in. So if one ship from England coming over here sinks, all the underwriters and the other insured paid for the cargo. Now, if we look at what is left of the Social Security system right now and where it's going, um, are we letting the fox watch the chicken house? 
with this, too? I mean, I'm glad the thing passed. But who's going to oversee the overseer? And now I'll let you guys go. Have a good day. All right, David, i take a crack at that. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting you use Social Security as a model. And, and here's my big concern about the future of the Affordable Care Act. What I like about Social Security and Medicare, for all of their faults, they work pretty well at what they're supposed to do, especially Medicare. When you compare the access to health care for people over 65 today to what it was before 1964, it's, it's like night and day. And the reason why is everybody is eligible for Medicare. Mitt Romney may have turned it down, but he paid into it, and he could claim it. And even if he's not going to claim it, his parents are probably in it, and he's got aunts and uncles. We're all in. It's a program for everybody. And when it's a program for everybody, members of Congress want to make sure it works well. In the Affordable Care Act, we haven't really done that. We've said if you're poor, you get more poor people into Medicaid and other poor but not so poor people will get subsidies from the federal government. But the rest of us will still get our employer-sponsored care. And when the budgets are tight, who's going to be speaking for those Medicaid recipients and those subsidy recipients? It's not going to be Mitt Romney and Donald Trump because they don't see that as a program that they're going to benefit from. And, and, and that's what I worry about with the Affordable Care Act. I, anything else? Anything else to add there, Mark? Well, I just you know, there is some opinion that this is all moving down a road toward a single payer mm-hmm. system. Yeah, and so it it uh, as the uh, caller said, it it begs the question of who will provide the oversight for a completely government run system other than the discontent of the populace. Yeah. We have a question from our chat now from Jonathan. He's asking, "What's the impact on Indiana hospitals if state leaders refuse Medicaid expansion under PPACA?" Can you explain the Medicaid expansion a little bit? Just uh, As I understand it, the, the states would, in order to accept the expansion, need to um, enlarge the eligibility from 100% uh, to 133% of the, the poverty level. Mm-hmm. And so it, it basically, I guess if that didn't happen, it, it would prevent the expansion of the increased enrollment. Um, and we'd still have to be complying with other dimensions of the law, but but wouldn't have more people eligible to take advantage of it. Yeah, you know, the the Affordable Care Act is supposed to provide a new insurance to like th- over 30 million people. Half of that nationwide is from the Medicaid expansion. So you're talking about 50% of the uninsured that would benefit would be lost if states turned down this Medicaid expansion. and and cover everybody, as Mark said, up to 133% of federal poverty. The other part, it's not only raising the income threshold. The other thing, Medicaid, it wasn't just enough just to be poor. Under traditional Medicaid, you had to be poor and a child, poor and a caretaker of children, poor and disabled, poor and pregnant. If you were an able-bodied working person and just didn't make much money, you couldn't qualify for Medicaid, and now you can what it means for them, it's, it's, a, it's very bad for them because not only won't they get Medicaid, but they won't even qualify for a subsidy for the exchange. For some odd reason, maybe this was a kind of a poison pill to make sure states would take the Medicaid expansion. But to get the subsidy to, to go on and buy, you have to earn um, more than, I don't know, I think it's 200% of federal poverty to actually get into the to get the subsidy. So so the people who if we don't do a Medicaid expansion, they not only don't get their Medicaid coverage, but they don't get a subsidy to buy their own insurance and it, it was a very bad deal for those people. And as I understand the statistics, there's around 850,000 people in the state of Indiana that are uninsured. So as David said about half of that would be eligible. So impacts on hospitals like IU Health Bloomington Hospital, which is a safety net hospital would mean we're still taking care of that populace, but they're, mm-hmm. they're uninsured. Well, no Governor, Governor Daniels said yesterday that uh, he would be opposed to it. So did Mike Pence. He would be opposed to the expansion. So, Yeah, here's something that uh, a lot of this is political because, you know, when you look at how they designed the Medicaid expansion, right now under Medicaid, for every dollar Indiana spends, the federal government sends $2. So it's a good deal. 
When we cut a dollar from our Medicaid budget, we lose $2 of federal. Under the expansion, the federal government will pick up 100% of the cost initially and then ratchet down to 90%. So for every dollar we spend on the expansion, we get $9 from the federal government. That's tough to turn down. What the states are really worried about, because a nine-to-one match is not, not going to break anybody's budget. What the states are really worried about is the effect of the mandate on the existing Medicaid population. Instead of a nine-to-one match, we only get a two-to-one match, or New York only gets a one-to-one match because it's a richer state than we are. There are a lot of people who are currently eligible for Medicaid who don't sign up for whatever reasons. Now there's a mandate that they have insurance. Now they're going to have to go and sign up. But they're going to come in under the existing two-to-one match because they're already eligible. That's what the states are worried about. Mm. We have a comment from Luis here online, and this is for you, Mark. She says she'd appreciate it if you could say a bit more about the difference between paying for care based on quantity and paying on the basis of comprehensiveness. She says she forgets the term you used. Um, she wants to know what the hospital is doing to help us move from the quantity system to a better reimbursement system. Well, what I was referring to, again, is when you, th- you think about our current structure of reimbursement for providers, whether it be physicians or hospitals, you're totally rewarded on how much you do. The more procedures you do, the more admissions you do, uh, the more tests you do, the more you're reimbursed. That's the alignment incentive today. And what I was indicating is that with some experimentation through this act, with things called value-based purchasing, where, again, we had to hit certain thresholds for clinical outcomes and we had to hit certain levels for patient satisfaction outcomes, that affects and puts at risk some Medicare reimbursement, which in today's world will play out at about 2% at risk, but rises to about 8% at risk. And that is at least beginning this process of what I was calling value-based health care or a structure where we're being rewarded or incentivized, uh, and there's penalties if you don't hit certain desired outcomes. My concern, again, is is we're living in two worlds, and we might for a long time, where this is, is applying to us, but we still have the old structure for the majority of our reimbursement. And it's hard to navigate two different uh, aligned incentives. Right. And the other thing that will help a lot, and, and fortunately the medical profession is much more receptive to this than they were 20 years ago, and that is paying doctors on salary. Mark says, you know, if, you pay, if a surgeon has to earn their million dollars by doing 100 surgeries, they're going to do 100 surgeries. But if, they can, if they're going to earn their million dollars through salary, they'll do 50 surgeries, and that'll be good. You know, as, as, as often said, the most expensive medical devices that doctors pen because the, the doctors decide what to order and and if their incentive is to do more they will do more and so salary and and when i say doctors are more receptive to being paid on salary because it, it's it's not much fun being a small business person anymore and if if a hospital will, or a group will employ you pay a salary they take care of your malpractice you're on a, a, a regular schedule. You don't have to be 24-7. Uh, and, and a lot of people like that. I think more than half, I think maybe True Mark may know this, that more than half of doctors are employed now. But it's, it's heading in the right direction. I agree. And, and when we reference the old HMO days, I think that's one of the differences today, that there's much greater alignment. Of, of physicians with hospitals and the delivery system. One of the things we do in, in compensation with physicians who are fully aligned is they, it is insurance blind. It doesn't make a difference whether they take care of an uninsured patient or a commercially insured patient. There's no incentive there to, to screen them out or <laughs> send the no pays to, to the hospital. Um, and, and correspondingly, we can start to apply the right incentives for the desired outcomes. Okay, we have about 10 minutes to go. If you want to get in a phone call, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or the web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And we have Al, who has been very patiently waiting to talk to us. So, Al, go ahead. Just a short question. I was just curious as to what impact this uh, new pool of recipients for health services will have uh, on 
doctor visits to offices and incentives for doctors or for young folks to go into the medical pr- profession. David? And- David, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, people will go see doctors more, and will people be more interested in being a doctor? You know, it's still one of the great professions, and uh, what we know that's going to come out of this act, if more people have insurance, we're going to need more doctors to take care of them. So there will be more opportunities, and, you know, it's, you, you look at going to law school now, and I think the latest data is 55% of law grads last year have jobs, and, and, and with doctors, it's probably 100%. Uh, so, yeah, I think med- medicine's always been an attractive profession, and, and this just makes it better. I think one of the interesting things is the future of primary care physicians. You know, Mark talked about doing, thinking about nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, because a lot of what primary care doctors do, the routine stuff, can be done by a nurse practitioner. And if you have, you, you do have cardiac disease, you're, you're probably better off with a cardiologist than a, your primary care doctor. Or if you have diabetes, you're probably better off with an endocrinologist. So... Should, will we see a shifting of, you know, this, the complicated stuff to specialists and the uncomplicated stuff to non-physicians? And maybe we don't need as many primary care doctors. Maybe they can supervise a lot of nurse practitioners. Okay. There, there are a lot of things we can talk about here in the last six or seven minutes. One of them I want to bring up because we're in Bloomington, the medical device tax in this particular law. I want to get David's take on that. You know, the uh, we have Cook Medical here. The Cook people have been very actively opposing this, wanting that particular part of the, the law to be repealed. Um, do you agree with their position? Do you think they have a good position? What? Well, on the they, uh, I think, you know, it's not unreasonable to tax, you know, the medical industry to pay for this Affordable Care Act. I think that is a reasonable thing to do. Um, obviously, their their obligation is to maximize their profits, and, and, and so they should go out and lobby. The, the danger is the Affordable Care Act is a 2,400-page bill where lots of compromises were made. And it wouldn't have passed without everybody making a lot of compromises. And, and what's going to be unfortunate is you're going to have people who had to make compromises, and, and now they're going to come in and lobby Congress and say, pull out what I had to sacrifice to make this pass. And we're already starting to see it unravel bit by bit. And it would be very unfortunate if it unraveled a lot more. I, I think uh – I could be wrong, but I don't think Cook negotiated any compromise. So yeah. I think in this particular case, it's just a levied tax right. uh, where they're making perhaps a legitimate claim to, to say their products are being used regardless right. um, and that this is going to cost some businesses and some jobs. So a lot of these things are tied to economic development. Mm-hmm. And they are already working on getting this through Congress. Right. It's already passed the House. Uh, right. The repeal has passed the House, but, yes. of course, the Senate's the place where, yeah. where it could definitely get hung up. And something I was hearing a lot yesterday with, with Romney, well, and, and even Governor Pantier is just rallying Republicans to go to the polls in November. Do you think this is going to make an impact on the election? And even if they do rally Republicans, what can they really do now with this law? Well, I think this election will turn on the most important by far will be what's happening with the economy. If the economy continues to struggle, it's going to be tough for Obama to win. If the economy picks up, it's, I don't see how Romney can win. What, what this can do is if, on a close election, whoever gets their base out. And yes, this could energize Republicans who are unhappy. Look, we get this Affordable Care Act. We need a change. And Democrats have less less to, to energize them. You know, we won. And when you win, it's hard to get your, your, uh, your people riled up and, and feel like they have to show up at the polls. I, I think the election was already starting to be polarized around big government, central control, freedom of choice, less government. And I think this just further puts weight on that. It just fans a flame, yep. doesn't it? Yep. We have a phone call. Let's go to David. David, we only have about two minutes. Um, hi, guys. Um, thank you for being on the show today. Um, I just had a quick question. I'm, I'm one of the 850,000 Hoosiers without 
access to in- affordable insurance. I work in a local nonprofit, and my employer is in no position at all to be able to afford those kinds of costs, and nor does the salary that they provide myself and my family um, provide that as well. I don't qualify for volunteers in medicine. Uh, my family is about $1,000 over the threshold. So really, um, folks like us, we're stuck in a big donut hole. So it's nice that there might be um, options down the road. But what would your recommendation be for folks like me? And I'm sure that there are thousands of us in this community alone who have no way of going to a doctor, even for preventative care, things like antibiotics, um, and you feel really trapped. So any advice would be great on how to proceed. Mark, what would you recommend? Uh, well, I, I uh, was going to recommend Volunteers of Medicine because <laughs> because it's there. And uh, while there's been some early talk about, well, will VIM go out of business? And, and, of course, we'd love to see it go out of business in the sense of everyone has coverage and it has primary care. It's still going to be there for people who fall through the cracks. But perhaps there's even another strata or niche of individuals, as the caller said, that, that won't fit. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge back to the community, I think for us to say if we've still got parts of, of our system that aren't getting coverage, how do we rally around that somehow? Is there, is there a clearing a place for somebody like David to contact just to ask for help and guidance? Well, I, I would certainly say contact us. Contact our financial co- consultants and, mm-hmm. and some of our social work folks, and, and we'll work hard. We're screening 700 people a month in terms of getting them coverage. And it's amazing the number of people don't realize they're eligible for something, the Healthy Indiana Plan, Hoosier HealthWise, whatever. So if he would contact us, uh, we call it individual solutions. We will go through that that process of saying, is there any coverage anywhere that we might be able to get? Okay. And he might contact the County Medical Society and see if they have a way to link up uninsured with physician. We have a a quick thing here in the chat room if we have time to get to it. They're saying, uh, in regards to what you were saying about hospice care, Mm -hmm. wondering if what you're saying in a nutshell is society just needs to reevaluate the whole system. We, I think the answer is yes, right? Because <laughs> we're out of time. Okay. So, all right. That's it? We, yes, that's it. I, I want to thank Mark Moore and David Orlicker for being here with us. S- Sarah, it's great to be with you. And for our uh, engineer today, Kevin Evans, and producers Gretchen Frazee, Julie Raw, and Dan Goldblatt making a comeback, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.